Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Venture Capital. This is a podcast series hosted by Chia Zheng Yang, venture capitalist, and Jeremy Ao, myself, who is a serial exited founder. We're taking this opportunity to have a real talk that's frank and transparent about the reality of venture capital and really take a look at what the landscape is going on today. And we hope that this is an opportunity for everybody to be part of the discussion as well as to learn about what the next steps are uh, for the industry. We're going to be funny, we're going to be real, and we're going to be buddies in this conversation. But the best thing that's going to be out here is feel free to ask us any questions that you have out there, and we'll be getting to them through answering them on the show. I would like to welcome Chia. Chia is a principal at Saison Capital, a leading fintech-focused venture capital fund who has done especially well in emerging markets like Southeast Asia and India. Their direct investments include Grab, Southeast Asia's largest startup and super app, as well as Shopback, Southeast Asia's largest shopping and cashback rewards platform. Their limited partner investments include some of the top performing funds in Southeast Asia, like East Ventures and BeNext, as well as global funds like Quorna Capital and Entler. Previously, he was the fifth employee for Antler, the leading global pre-team venture builder. He also both invested and launched markets for them in Europe. He was also at Rocket Internet, where he helped build out an e-commerce company in Pakistan and Sri Lanka that was bought by Alibaba. On the side, he is co-founder of Shaper Impact Capital, a 60-person platform that helps early-stage startups with an impact connect with resources they need for their next stage of growth. His educational background includes a law undergraduate degree from Cambridge and will be doing his Harvard MBA in the future. He likes indie music, hiking, and writes about venture capital at his website, which can be found at www.chiajy.com. Through answering them on the show. Awesome, Chia, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jeremy. Great to be here. Yeah, so today you and I have prepared point of view on what venture capital is and the value chain of finance. So what is venture capital? So I think there's a lot of really exciting news and hype about what venture capital is. And it, it's obviously really exciting industry to be able to work with very intelligent founders who are building the next big thing, being able to see how industries are disrupted, being able to see how new businesses are being created. One thing that that is a part of venture capital that really doesn't get talked a little bit about is what are the what are the inputs, what are the outputs? How is venture capital affected as an industry? What is it actually from a solid theoretical basis? One thing that we we wanted to talk about here today was venture capital as a financial asset class and how that plays a role and is affected by the broader financial economy around it. So the concept we want to talk about today is really about venture capital as a piece in the financial value chain and what that means and what you need to understand about other asset classes to really understand what affects venture capital. Yeah, I think that's such an underappreciated piece because I think we often think about venture capital from a founder perspective as individual venture capitalists who are representing the fund and we're 
pitching to them and sharing our story and you know working over the business model together over a pitch deck and getting their yeses and nos from people. And I think what you're also sharing is all these people are representatives of the companies that they represent, right? Which is the funds and the financial forces that drive the incentives and outcomes for the industry. So really excited to get into this. Yeah, absolutely. And hope this is helpful for, you know, aspiring VCs or, or current VCs or founders to really understand, you know, some of the incentives involved for, for VCs, etc. So on a very high level, venture capitalists are investing into asset classes, which is companies that they hope to sell on to other people down the road. And they hope to sell those shares, of course. So, you know, buy low, sell high. So what then affects them, of course, is not just, you know, how do you buy in at a low price with good founders? And there's a lot of material on that, but it's also, you know, how do you sell high? And so VCs, a lot of VCs are affected by, you know, who and the attitudes of the people buying from them, which typically can be growth equity investors, corporate uh, sentimentalities, or even the retail market, right? So let's go at this kind of sequentially, right? Of course, it can jump on the value chain, but essentially VCs investing into companies that they hope growth equity investors will then invest into. When growth equity investors are then investing into companies that they hope private equity companies will invest into, and those companies are investing into companies that they hope the retail market will eventually buy in. Once you've established the fact that there is some level of connectivity between large public markets to early stage capital, then you start to see that, okay, there are certain things that might affect how VCs think that might happen really far away. So I think the easiest and and the most obvious ones would be sentiments about particular industries. You know, if you're investing into a company with the hopes that it's a growth story, it's not really about where the company is at in terms of unit economics, but really that there's a gigantic macro trend. You also want to be able to have the confidence that retail investors, growth investors are also strong believers in that macro trend. Otherwise, you can invest in the company, but because of lack of understanding, you know, no one wants to pick that up on the growth equity stage or the public equity stage. Let's take a concrete example of if we were investing into co-living, when WeWork was doing its meteoric fundraising rounds with SoftBank, and the sentiment that growth equity investors or, or investors like SoftBank seemed to be giving the market was that, hey, this is a very interesting space. And so we also started to see a lot of VCs try to make small bets here and there and get exposure to this space. Of course, when when the IPO didn't go through and, and it devolved into a fight on that side, VC interest quickly died down because they saw, okay, look, this is no longer true. This space is no longer hot. We are no longer as confident that growth investors will invest into this space, right? So we can immediately kind of see that sentimentality and how people are thinking on the corporate, public, growth equity stage really affects how early stage VCs sometimes think about what is investable, especially for more unpredictable business models for particular industries. I'll make one last point here, which is thinking about exits, I think, for an early stage founder, early stage VC is sometimes not very reliable and it really shouldn't be done, especially if you're building something truly very disruptive. But it is still a very relevant part of a lot of business models, especially business models which have a very strong, more understandable unique value proposition. And so 
a lot of VCs, uh, great VCs, because they really understand, okay, here's the product roadmap and M&A roadmap for certain large tech companies or certain large traditional companies. This is the gaps that they're filling. And we want to be able to invest in the companies to fulfill that need. And that's a clear acquisition path. So being able to understand how different investors think across their value chain, having proprietary insights perhaps is very useful for an early stage investor. Yeah, I think the interesting piece of that has been from the founder point of view, seeing how news of great exits and great failures in the public domain kind of ripple through the value chain for the valuations of companies that are climbing the same stack, either in terms of business model or industry or approach and squeezing valuations and the funding cycle for the companies building the business. There's something that's really true about it going all the way to the front where people are making decisions about what businesses to build. And part of that has been about what's hot and what's not so hot and what looks like it's going to be a great exit and what's not going to be a great exit. What's interesting, you know, as I hear you, is like there's a lot of deeper level thinking that has to happen all the time by operators, which is, is this a business model that I understand the fundamentals of and isn't shaped by the overall public market exit path or the VC path business, but saying these are the models that I have, this is the profitability or growth that we see the opportunity on. And then kind of looking at capital, you know, the right form of capital to complement that growth path, whether it's venture capital to other forms of capital like debt. Yeah, absolutely. I think that and one of the things I try to explain sometimes to, to first-time founders is that sometimes they see that a particular industry is getting really hot and they want to build a business model around that um, because they read in TechCrunch or, or what have you that this company founders are okay-ish, somehow managed to raise a huge, massive seed round, right? And they, they say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm stronger than these guys. I can, I can probably do something better. That comes from maybe not being aware that some of these rounds, for example, are really constructed by VCs who are trying to make very specific bets based on what they think on what growth equity investors are, are really interested in. Right? And, and you see these waves come and go. And it's really VCs making specific bets rather than VCs truly believing that this industry will be very sustainable. It's just something they want exposure into. And so kind of building another business doesn't work because actually the VCs already have the exposure. They don't want to take multiple exposures into something they may not fully believe in. Some of the dynamics on why there's such a contradiction between business models that somehow get funded and, and really solid guys trying to trying to build uh, similar business models and you know sometimes struggling to get funding on that side. A great example of that is uh, WeWork, as you mentioned, and how that impacted the appeal of co-living spaces. I think one way that we saw WeWork also have that appeal was that we saw so many WeWorks appear in other countries as well, right? So kind of like saying, oh, WeWork has been success. It's a unicorn. And therefore, we should be able to be inspired a business model, copy some core aspects of the business model, and then localize that for the local market. One of the tricky parts was just that as people did that, and there was a rush to do that because they saw WeWork success, was that we saw a lot of founders and talent work at building that out, but also saw some money also follow that those bets as well, because that was the current understanding of it. One of the tricky parts that happens then is that even in America, people had raised strong concerns about the business model. Those concerns were not as easily understood from a market in like Vietnam or Indonesia about why it wasn't working. 
I remember hearing some of the stories about local operators kind of saying like to themselves, similar to American operators, this business model doesn't seem to work for us either. Does it work in America? And they call their friends in America and they're like, oh, it doesn't work in America either. So they're not sure what's going on. But it does feel like the capital is fueling the ability to punch above their weight, right? And that unfortunately shattered. And when we work shattered and that became public, known to everybody, it shattered the business model operating assumptions for a lot of the VCs, the employees at the startups, and the founders of these WeWork localized copies. That was just such a painful experience for everybody. A lot of smart people in these local markets were also thinking to themselves, like, these are my business models. I'm also not seeing the numbers work out, but WeWork is doing well. So we can be able to fundraise based on these numbers that we know ourselves don't really make full sense. Another way of thinking about it is for certain business models, not all, obviously, um, but for certain business models, it is about multiple financial stakeholders collectively taking the same leap of faith. And when that leap of faith gets broken along that financial value chain, it becomes very difficult to, to invest. Sometimes that break can literally happen overnight. Maybe a certain company gets a really bad fundraising round or macro factors hit, for example, COVID, and people are just no longer interested, and the entire sector loses confidence basically overnight. And I, I've seen that literally happen over the course of a couple of weeks. Rumors spread pretty fast about certain things, certain sectors, and the general sentiment will immediately shift. Okay, this space is no longer investable. That really sucks for founders who are you know, maybe spending months or years building companies in the sector, and, and all of a sudden, financial sentiment changes and nothing has really changed on the uniqueness or the operational capacity, just sheer financial confidence. I agree with you. Sometimes founders can find it a bit unfair because they're like, I've been building this business with this assumption and suddenly it's changed from left to right. What I've come to understand working with other founders and talking to them is that, and also with VCs, is the market is trying to understand at the same point of time what the full value of these things are. And investors also discovering what the full economic value of these models and the information that's cascading is not that they're being inconsistent or unfair, but it's more like the market is now pricing in that new information across the whole chain, which is what a market is supposed to do in aggregate because we want to know what the true price of apples and oranges and oil in the public markets. And we want to know a fair price in the stores and the, the price for a startup that's opaque you know, because of the fact that it's operating so much uncertainty around customer need and market size now gets revalued with that new information. The reason why this is a good conversation is because you can feel like it's a personal conflict between founders and investors and the market versus the valuation. But it's actually kind of like a learning loop across all the various stakeholders to understand what is the full potential value of whatever is being created. One thing I'll say here is that some of the best founders that I've come across and some of the founders that I really enjoy talking to are founders that really understand some of the nuances that have gone on and put in past previous deals. For example, being able to understand that, hey, this is some of the reasons that the deal was done. Here were the rational ones. Here were some of the irrational reasons this deal was done. Helps you get a little bit of flavor on what is behind all of this hype how particular business models might be funded, but maybe some of the, the reasons why they got funded were more personal reasons, there were more relationship reasons involved, and it says nothing about the business model itself. 
Whereas here are some of the deals that were actually, you know, very exciting. No one talked about them. And it was really exciting because certain investors have figured out this particular piece about this business that very few people have, have yet to figure out. And so these are the business models that are going to be really, really exciting. And so I think the founders that I'm very impressed with, and I think are the ones that do all really have this kind of understanding and, and background context for how all of these things happen. And so when they go on and they fundraise, they have a very more precise understanding of not just what the early stage VC wants, but what's going on for up and down the value chain and what has happened previously. That is so true, right? As someone who's been coaching a lot of Harvard startups, I think there's a big difference between those who have domain expertise or have the ability to go deep into the industry versus people who are, have a more shallow understanding of the industry they're going after. Because they're able to, like what you said, understand the fair and honest reality of the operating dynamics and the fair and honest appreciation of the valuation slash funds needed to make that next set of milestones de-risked and made into reality. A very common slide in many decks is look at all our peers in other countries and they raise so much money and they raise it at this valuation. So since our market is the same size, we should have the same valuation or the same dynamics. And I think that's a helpful slide in terms of at least saying that there is some sentiment and I think it points the viewers of those slides to do more research and say, oh, good, your comparables, company A and B and C, these different markets, and the research process can happen there. It's just that I think the next level of that slide or presentation is to say, how are we different? You know, how are we better? And that's the easy one to say, but also what's a more realistic take on what needs to be done, right? And the depth of that conversation, the Q&A in that sense, is going to make the difference because it's going to ripple not just into the whether the, you're funded or not, but also whether you have the right fundraising approach, which also means that you have the right business strategy approach to, to get what's needed to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Investors, again, treat companies very differently and investors invest for multiple different reasons. For example, a conversation I recently had we were talking about the viability of a particular business model and and it was pointed out to me that a particular sovereign wealth fund had invested at, at seed stage into uh, similar business models. If you weren't aware of the strategic nature of some of these investors and maybe some of the relationships that pre-existed between the founders and the investors before uh, the investment was made, you might come away taking some of the wrong learning from that. This kind of contextual knowledge is, is really kind of important for teasing out some of the behaviors of how investors work. And, and it's, a, it's a vast universe. There's a lot to learn. I'm learning every day. So it's obviously a tall order for founders to try and build companies. But I think that's where kind of constant dialogue, building, building yourself this engine, which allows you to maybe get that information from other parties aligned with you and, and really understand the scene in the better way. I think that that's one of the ways to really build a, a company that can also get as much of the support that it needs. For many founders, balancing obviously the operational reality of their business and how they can drive more profits and drive more growth. And obviously for VC, there's the investment and realizing the full potential of the business. And then we kind of talked about it, like these are the pricing moments of the industry. These are the economic reality conditions like COVID that's changing around the world. How should that conversation happen, right? How should a startup or how would you want to hear a startup talk about 
the changes in the broader economy and how that impacts the business? A couple of ways. I think the first one is when, when there's large macros, like an economic downturn or a pandemic, I think the amount of analysis out there is, is, is fairly straightforward, right? You try to find out what everyone is doing, you try to find out how investors are thinking, and, and, you, and you take it forward from there. I think one of the things which is also fairly important to know, and maybe you don't directly find out, but you, you try to have, a, again, an engine or a network that figures that out for you, is that is what you know a lot of investors do, which is try to figure out why certain deals get done, what the story behind them, what's the commonalities, what's the differences, what are the nuances that make specific behavior and give you a, a more concrete insight into what the future looks like from that financing perspective. So I think all of those points are, are kind of fairly crucial. And, and and not to say that this is something that the founder needs to do. Uh, again, it's something that you can build a support engine for. Typically with your existing investors, sometimes with founder networks are pretty helpful for this also. But I think the, the, the point is that it is a fairly kind of important thing to, to think about, especially if you are building a business model that does require quite a lot of infusion of capital, right? And you're burning a lot and you, you need to do that. A great example of that would be the COVID pandemic and everybody scrambling to figure out <laughs> the health ramifications, the economic ramifications, and then rippling out into the VC ramifications, and then into the startup ecosystem. I remember during the pandemic, one big conversation I was reading about was the sovereign wealth funds and the hedge funds. Like, what was their point of view about the various asset classes between the public stock markets, the private equity markets, and the venture capital markets? And then there was like the second order effect, which is if they are thinking that, what is what are they thinking everyone else is thinking, right? Is it going to be a V-shape, a W-shape? How does it play out in different geographies? And it was just really interesting to see all of that turbulence and having those webinars where it felt like VCs and founders were in the same room brainstorming or discussing how it impacted the technology industry as a whole, because suddenly like VCs and founders were kind of like, part of the same boat called do LPs want to put money into our asset class and fund burn rates and employees, right? I don't know. What do you think? VCs are probably as susceptible to kind of LP sentiment as, as founders are susceptible to VC sentiment. I and mean, VCs were suddenly in the position of, oh, we also don't know what's going to go, go on. And we're dependent on some inner mechanics of uh, financial institution that we're trying to figure out what's going on, but no one wants to tell us anything because they might not have have firm view also. So it was it was deeply uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people. And it's just illustrative of that process. And so what a lot of VCs were, were doing at the time was, you know, keeping very strong, doing a lot of calls with other VCs, really trying to get us a sense of the market, uh, of what's going on, doing calls with a lot of LPs, trying to get their sense and and trying to be, you know, among the first to figure out, okay. If sentiment changes, I'll be one of the first people to know because they finally made a decision on something and, and they told me, me a day later, etc. So that's that's the, the, the kind of attitude that was going on. And so when LPs started being able to, to make firmer decisions, you had the knock-on effect with, with VCs starting to be slightly more comfortable, fundraising, building up new funds, etc., or in, in some instances, VCs being able to say, okay, we kind of got the sense that we can do our, our next fund. We can start deploying a little bit faster than, than we want to because there are a lot of great opportunities right now. Yeah. It's interesting to see 
that also from the founder perspective, right? Which was that, you know, all the founders were racing to call each other as well to be like, well, what are you seeing for your SEO and search engine marketing performance? Because we were seeing, depending on the vertical, very differing impacts on the performance of marketing acquisition, but also the conversion rates through the funnel, right? So some people were saying like, okay, you know, everybody's still clicking and seeing stuff and putting their name, but they're not converting in terms of signups or they're not converting during the sales process. That's more on the direct consumer side. And other enterprise people were like, I'm talking to these people, I'm still getting calls, but they're distracted, right? You know, they're, the, the key stakeholders are thinking about their business, they're thinking about their families, right? So this may be a number one or number two procurement decision in a normal peacetime piece, but doesn't seem to have that emotional reality today, right? Because people are worried for their jobs even and their own personal safety. So it was interesting to see that ripple up as well from the the real economy, <laughs> Main Street, and then founders kind of scrambling to understand what that meant within the teams, but also discuss if those conversations were also happening for other companies <laughs> in their space. And then the conversation was then also like, how do we start talking about this now that we're starting to understand that this is not just us, but more like a broader trend and we're trying to understand health policy. How do we communicate this to our VCs, <laughs> not on our quarterly board conversations, but how do we get ahead of the news or stay on top of the news, right? And it was just interesting to see like that weird like mixing between like, like you said, the financial markets, uncertainty and lots of dialing was so much a parallel to founders doing a whole bunch of group dialing about the real economy and that giant mash to be like, okay, what could be the consensus by vertical? What could be the consensus by geography to some extent? What are the scenarios for a better healthcare outcome? versus a worse healthcare outcome. And, and then kind of like boil down to a bunch of really painful conversations for everybody, which is, you know, how much cash do we have? How much runway do we have? And what strategic decisions we need to make about acquisition versus profitability versus growth, just because something changed in the real economy, the economic economy and the health policy of each country. So part of this value chain of faith, I think one interesting dimension about that is how investors think about what new business models are VC backable. Let's take a step back. I think there are multiple categories of different business models that we, we look at. And trivially, let's say the three categories. And the first one is a lifestyle business and everyone knows what that is. The second one, private equity type business models. So these are business models traditionally categorized by stable cash flows, very understandable business model, profitable and generating kind of slightly lower growth rates. And then the, the VC business models and the VC business models are ones that are traditionally you know, associated with disruption, fast growth, maybe cash burning, but it will get very large point, especially in terms of valuation very quickly. The interesting thing about this concept is that different business models can move around in terms of whether or not it's VC-backable or only private equity-backable. Now, if we take a step back and you know look at the history of venture capital and what venture capital traditionally used to invest in all the way back in the 50s and 60s, they were really investing into deep tech companies. And this was really cutting edge, protected by IP, had the ability to transform the entire industry, right? So all the semiconductors, hardware, et cetera. Over time, and, and it, the value proposition was very clear. You, you, you produce a new piece of technology, it changes the industry, it becomes the leader. That's great. We're going to make a lot of money from that. 
And it slowly moved into into things like software, where the defensibility was probably less evident as compared to you know, hardware IP type companies, but clearly was able to showcase a moat, was also able to grow fast and, and spread fast and disrupt the, the industry, albeit in different ways. And so SaaS companies were great. Cost of sales was extremely low. In practice, software served as a really great moat because once you download one piece of software, you probably won't try to download another piece. And so it was a great business. And VCs like that. Increasingly, we started investing into other types of businesses. We started increasingly investing into businesses that were great, but may not necessarily have a, a software mode, right? Um, so we started investing into other verticals. And this idea of what was a moat became a lot bigger. Now, I think the one extreme of this and what we've seen in, in the current cycle is looking at direct-to-consumer products. And direct-to-consumer products are and the CPG goods was very traditionally in the realm of private equity. Why venture capitalists started thinking about D2C was they, they thought about what a moat meant and realized, hey, you know, brands can have very similar moats. It's obviously harder to tell sometimes if a particular early stage brand will have that moat as compared to, again, IP back in the 50s where it's in the patent office. But they start to see, okay, some pe- some teams with the right strategy in the right industries can really grow very fast. And that's good enough for us because, again, our mission is to invest low and sell high just in a much faster period than private equity funds. And maybe if we invest X amount, we can get it there actually much quicker. And so you started to see VC funds kind of blur the lines a little bit between kind of what is a private equity type business model versus a VC type business model. It seemed to imply that at the end of the day, it's more about like how fast you want to execute a particular strategy rather than particular types of business models. So I think one very interesting conversation linking the two concepts together of that financial value chain with what's a VC-backable company is that particular industries might be more exciting because more people are paying attention to it. For example, in the sexual wellness space, there might be DUC companies that everyone is talking about. And so it becomes immediately venture backable because we all know that there are growth equity folks that are excited by that scene. But by that same measure, maybe DTC in in vitamins, although that is actually hot, but DTC in vitamins may be less exciting because the growth equity investors haven't really heard as much buzz about it. And so VCs think, okay, not yet. We'll, we'll wait until there's a lot of buzz before we try to make bets on that. A lot of that conversation and, and why kind of the topic shift on what is VC backable is really kind of based on, on what's going on in the broader market and how financial investors are, are thinking about particular types of, of things rather than you know core fundamentals because this definition can and has shifted. Yeah, I think that's, that's very spot on and a great articulation of the different uh, categories and the evolution of what is a moat and to some extent what VCs want to back. One company we've discussed before has been Casper, which is the direct-to-consumer mattress brand, which has grown tremendously, has a tremendous valuation. And I think we see a lot about in the press about what they've done as a startup story and as well as their consumer goods. I've also owned a Casper mattress and pillows during my time in the US, so I've been a consumer for them. And I've actually also had an opportunity to visit their offices and hear from the founders themselves about 
what their vision was. And from their perspective, what they said they wanted to do was they wanted to become the Nike of sleep, which was a tremendously invigorating vision because we all know how huge Nike is. It's even it's orders of magnitude larger than a Casper. And so you're kind of thinking to yourself, yeah, like nobody thought that the footwear industry when we first started out was anything more than a commodity that could have a brand, that could have a mode, that could have loyalty. And now to us, Nike is, you know, loyalists are there. There's, you know, Adidas and Puma loyalists. There's space for like some great companies and everybody else is kind of like on the side, right? I think sometimes the conversation on the D2C side is if this consumer company or this company gets everything right, right? They can and are part of a large market. They can get a huge share and they can command a high loyalty from the customers and they can execute well <laughs> and have enough cash to make it through whatever life throws their way, then that could be an incredibly huge company. And I think that's the part that's so hard for everybody grasps is like how many <laughs> hoops you have to jump through uh, that are on fire <laughs> and do that sequentially. Well, to summarize, we've had the opportunity to hear about what venture capital is, the industry factors that impact both venture capitalists and startups, and how situations like pandemics and different business types are flowing through the entire calculus for everybody in the system. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. And when you join as a member on our site, uh, you'll be able to ask us questions that we'll be able to answer on the show. Thank you so much.